Okay, we're continuing on in Ezra, uh, the book of Ezra. This is Ezra chapter 9. And so we're continuing on now in this, this series of first-person accounts from Ezra. This, these are sometimes referred to as the Ezra memoirs. And uh, the text is turned to the first person, and here we're following up on the events that happened last time that we talked about in chapter 8 in terms of building the temple and issues that arose in that endeavor. And now they're moving on to a new situation. So that's what it means by after these things had been done here in chapter 9. We're going to read all of chapter 9, verses 1 through 15. And this can be found in your pew Bibles on page 395. So Ezra chapter 9, verse 1 through 15. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves out from the peoples of the land with their abominations from the Canaanites, from the Hittites, the Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that their holy race or holy seed has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hands of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak I pulled hair from my head and my beard, and I sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words, uh, the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn, and I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to open shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land, land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands and their abominations that have filled it from the end to end with their uncleanliness. uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons and never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. 
And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any escape? O Lord, God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us, that you would walk with us in the power of your spirit, that is the spirit of Christ who testifies to us of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that this would lead us, Lord, to a spirit of repentance. Let your word be clear to us and let your spirit make it so that we recognize that these are the words of the God of life. These are the words of the lover of our soul. These are the words of our high priest, Jesus Christ, who walks before us, who knows all too acutely what our sins deserve. Pray that you would give us wisdom as we consider these things this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, if you've had the opportunity to follow with us through this series on Ezra, you've noticed that there have been some, some basic beats along the storyline, that the story has kind of followed several tracks. We began with this group returning sometime around 536 B.C. and included the king Zerubbabel and Sheshbazar and Yeshua, the priest, and a variety of characters. And actually, the book of Ezra tells that story from the third person. It reports on the story, but the narrator is an unnamed narrator. It's possible that it was Ezra, uh, but whoever it is, he's telling us of this account after the fact. So we have, we have this first group of people, and they come, and their primary concern is to rebuild the temple. But then we have Ezra coming some decades, even almost a century later, and in, in getting involved in this work, and, and he's coming too. He's like a, a second returnee, Ezra coming. And what is he doing? He's about the work of restoring the faithfulness of the people. So that, that first group was establishing the second temple. The second coming, the second return, that is of Ezra, is restoring the covenant community. And then, of course, this book uh, that many think should be read alongside Ezra because in the early ancient period, Ezra and Nehemiah were always kind of one. It's not actually until Origen, the early biblical scholar, that we see it divided. And he even puts a note that this is usually read together. In Nehemiah, we have a new set of memoirs. So we had Ezra's memoirs, but now we get a new set. It's a new voice. It's the character of Nehemiah, the administrator from Persia. And what is he interested in? He's interested in rebuilding the wall and securing the city. And it's interesting, isn't it, that we see, get, we see the three major themes of the restoration in these three returns. First Zerubbabel, then Ezra, then Nehemiah. First with the work on the temple, then the work on the community, and then thirdly, the work on the city. We see the major themes of the return community. They are both to seek the integrity of their relationship with their Gentile king while praying for restoration and temple worship. They're called to covenant loyalty to God and prayer for his good hand to be upon them 
in their relationship, not only with themselves, but with their neighbors and with their king around them who serves them. And then lastly, they're called to solidarity among all of their members, forming a city, forming a people who from the highest to the lowest should shoulder the work of building the kingdom of God. There is a little bit with this interest in temple, community, and wall. There is a kind of priest, prophet, king uh, arrangement here that a, a close reading will reveal that they are about the work of these three offices. And yet clearly in this section of the book of Ezra, we're getting Ezra's memoir. He's, he's reading to us in this first person account. He's speaking to us and he's dealing primarily with this issue of renewing the community, restoring the covenant community of God's people. Now he does that through this prayer of repentance. As a matter of fact, if you're interested in learning more about repentance, if you're thinking, I, I'd like my prayers of repentance to be a little bit more rich than they have been, let me uh, encourage you to do this. All you have to do is remember one number, okay? Remember the number nine, all right? Ezra nine, Nehemiah nine, and Daniel nine. These are all the, the, the key prayers of the restoration community. One in the mouth of Ezra, one in the mouth of Nehemiah, one, of course, in the mouth of Daniel. In each case, case you get a full-throated, impassioned prayer of repentance. If you say, I'm not really sure how to, rep how to repent, this gives you a great guide in how you, too, can pray prayers of repentance. Now, we shouldn't be surprised that he's interested in repentance. As a matter of fact, if we'd gone all the way back to what Moses said, Moses told them that when you go into the land that the Lord is giving you, you're going to enjoy its largesse. You're going to enjoy its fruit. You're going to enjoy the milk and the honey that flows from it. But you're going to respond not just with righteousness, but also at times with sin and rebellion. And Moses tells us, go back and read Leviticus 26 or Deuteronomy 30. He says that, at some point, there'll be some precipitous sin that's going to come. There's going to be something that you will do, and it'll be so great that the Lord is going to disperse you amongst the nations. But then he says, that time will come to an end, and it will come to an end when you remember me, when you are dispersed amongst the nations, and you return to me. And in Deuteronomy 30, he actually goes so far to say, and when you return to me, I'll bring you back to this land and you will enjoy greater blessing than your forefathers enjoyed. You'll, you'll have a better experience than Joshua or David or Solomon or Isaiah or Hezekiah, anybody you can imagine. You'll have a better experience of my blessings in that post-exilic time than you did in the pre-exilic time. But here's how you will trigger that restoration. Here's how you're going to trigger that new age of blessing. You will remember me, and you will call upon my name. The prophet Jeremiah says it in a different way. He says, when you're dispersed amongst the land, I will still be with you, and you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. This is a positive way of saying repentance. When you turn away from your sin and you seek me with all of your heart, you will then find me, and I will restore you to that post-exilic community that Moses promised to you. So we shouldn't be surprised that Ezra and Ezra 9 and Nehemiah and Nehemiah 9 and Daniel and Daniel 9, as they perceive the end of the exile coming and they're reading with the prophets and they're trying to figure out, what do I do next? Their immediate response is repentance. 
Now, I want you to notice a few things about this prayer. The first one is this. Notice that this prayer of repentance comes about because of the conviction of the leadership. It's quite possible, actually, that the reading of the law that Ezra gives in Nehemiah 8 is, 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 is some kind of glimpse into the kind of teaching that would have led the leaders to this repentance that's recorded here back in Ezra's memoirs. That they're hearing the word of the Lord be taught, and like with Acts 2, after, the, after uh, Peter preaches at Pentecost, it says that the word of God cut the audience to the heart. Or like the author of Hebrews, it says that the word is a double-edged sword. It cuts down between the marrow and the bone. It gets down to the, the core of who you are. That Something like that happened, and the leadership came forward, and they said, you may not know this, but we need to tell you what we've been doing. Notice they're not tattling on their members, but we are actually learn here that they are amongst the worst offenders. Now, let's be clear on one point. This is not the sin about, in your ESV calls the, the, the holy race mixing or the holy seed, which is something closer to the language of the original. This is not a sin of racial or ethnic impurity. That's not their concern here. As a matter of fact, if you went back to Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 through 4, which is where Ezra is learning that this is a sin, and probably the text that they're hearing and responding to, that passage is very clear. It's not because of an ethnic boundary that's being crossed in intermarriage, but that it's about a, a religious or theological boundary. It's about people counting their relationship with the Lord as so small that it's a kind of secondary or tertiary issue to be taken into consideration when thinking about marriage. As a matter of fact, the people who are doing this are taking maybe the safety, the, the, the pleasure, the uh, security, the comfort that comes from marriage, and they're putting that up here where they're putting their relationship with God down here. They're saying, they're saying you, this is a, a kind of secondary issue when it comes to this primary issue, which is my comfort, my security, my pleasure in marriage. This is a sin of complacency. It's about treating the faith treating the covenant of God as a secondary or tertiary thing. Sin, and this is true of all sin, sin is relegating God to a subordinate position and lifting up your own interest as the primary position. It is attempting to dethrone God, just like eating that fruit in the garden was. You're saying, I hear you say this, Lord, but I have my own judgments to make. It's about discounting God and discounting his requirements, the duties that he requires of us. So notice that this prayer of repentance begins with the confession of the leadership to Ezra about what they've done. Notice, number two, that he begins immediately with the addressee of all repentance, and that is God. He begins with this prayer, Oh God, have mercy. He doesn't say, Oh, Lord, you don't understand. I, I, I was doing it to them, but they kind of deserved it, right? Here they recognize that their sin is not merely a sin against the people around them, but that ultimately it is a sin against God, God who is the just judge and the creator of the universe. He is the one to whom the appeal is made. Oh, God. Notice, thirdly, this is a complete confession. There's no excuses made. 
Then he'll say, hey, listen, this has been kind of harsh, Lord. I mean, seriously, though, this is a small thing and everybody wants to be married, right? They don't come and say excuses. They don't have that kind of inner lawyer arguing on their behalf. Ezra rather comes and says, not only did we do it, we did much more than just this and we deserve the punishment. Your discipline is just. Moral psychologist Jonathan Haidt in his book, The Happiness Hypothesis, talks about how we all have an inner lawyer who's arguing on our behalf. Some of you say, yeah, I've also had an inner lawyer who's also condemning me. That's true, I realize that, but you also have a lawyer who's arguing on your behalf. If you are not sure about this, think about how you respond when someone cuts you off in traffic. Do you think, you know, they probably have places to be. They've got something important that they deserve to be ahead of me in traffic. No, we don't think that. However, when we cut someone else off, what do we do? We say, listen, if people knew how much of a rush I was in, how serious you know, this, this craving for you know, a soft serve at McDonald's was, then they would understand why I'm driving like this. You see, we all have a kind of inner lawyer who's constantly saying, if you could just see things through my eyes, you'd understand it wasn't that bad. Notice that that inner lawyer is absent in this prayer of remembrance and repentance. The prayer is complete. And notice, too, that he expands beyond the immediate situation. He doesn't stick there with intermarriage. He says this problem with displacing God for our own personal needs and desires, that's part of the sin, but this is really just the latest series in generationally long sin a generational series of disobedience before the Lord. This is the latest sin that goes back all the way to the pre-exilic period. Notice what Ezra prays in verses 7 and following. He says this, From the days of our fathers to this day we have been in great guilt. For our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of this land, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. Now let's be clear about something. No one is saying that you can repent for the sins of someone who has died and somehow get them forgiven because of your repentance. That's not what these these accounts of generational repentance looks like. What is he acknowledging? He's acknowledging this, that not only am I sinning, but that I come from a line of people who have been sinning that I've inherited sin. I've inherited the effects of sin. That I recognize I might even be enjoying some of the benefits and maybe even some of the judgment that came because of the sin of those who came before me. I'm not acting as if this is something that just started yesterday. This has been going on for a while. And it's perfectly appropriate, even righteous, to say, Lord, I repent because of this thing I did today, but I also recognize there's a whole series of sins I don't even know about that I've committed. I throw myself at your mercy. Not only that, I recognize that I was raised by people who were sinners too. Even my heroes of history were sinners. And I recognize, Lord, that we are all in need of salvation. This is not for some kind of self-loathing or some kind of masochism, spiritual masochism or something like that. What we are doing is we are recognizing how great a price Christ paid for our salvation. How deeply in need of him we are. He comes and he wins for us salvation, even though we are, to paraphrase 
prophet Amos, we are sinners and we are the sons of sinners. We are the daughters of sinners. He expands it out. It's not just this individual instance. It's a greater situation that needs to be repented of. Number four, notice how he says this in verse eight. He says, you've revived some of us. This is a very different picture from what we might have expected if we were reading the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37, where you have this very vivid picture of restoration, right? We have this valley of dry bones and the prophet goes out and he preaches to the dry bones and as, they, as the dry bones hear the word of God, they kind of click and clatter together. I, I, you know, I want to see this you know, in some kind of CGI movie or something because it would be really fun, right? See the bones kind of knobbing together and then all of a sudden you have the sinews and the nerves and the flesh and the muscles wrapping up around it because what does the word do? It doesn't return void. But then still they need the spirit to attend to it. That's ancient Near Eastern way of describing the effectual call. So the spirit attends to the preaching of the word and gives the bones new life, and they stand up, and the prophet says, behold, this vast army is Israel reconstituted, revived. And yet here we have Ezra and Ezra 9. Probably knowing that passage from Ezekiel, saying, you've revived some of us. I don't see the vast army. You've revived some of us, and that act is not only an act of your grace, but it reminds us of how short we are falling today. Isn't it sad that it's not all of Israel being revived? You see, the remnant theology of Ezra reminds us that God's grace is still active and alive. He is still bringing his people out of slavery. Notice how he says that we are all slaves And yet the Lord remembers us in our slavery. He's saying, like Hosea and the other prophets, this return from exile is like a new exodus. The Lord hears our voice and he is saving us. But isn't it sad that it's just some? Isn't it sad that he's only revived some of us? And yet even in his grace, that some of us is stepping forward and we're falling into all the old sins of our father's and our mothers. Fifthly, sin has far-reaching consequences. If you notice in the prayer, he has this interesting turn where he talks about the impurity of the land. And he, it's an interesting theology that we can't totally go into here, but it is this theology that we find throughout the scriptures, which is that the land, that is not just the land of Israel, but the whole earth is kind of under this burden that humans have brought to it. Remember when God creates the world, he calls it good. And and notice he never rescinds that judgment. He never says, and now it's not good or something like that. And now because of the curse, it's bad. He doesn't say that. The, The earth is still good and yet it is depicted as being under this kind of weight of burden that comes from the curse that humanity brought upon it. Paul even goes so far to say the creation itself, the cosmos, The constellations in the sky, Jupiter and Pluto and Earth and the mountains and the grass and your dog were all waiting with earnest expectation that one day God would finally lift the burden and reveal the sons of God. You see, this comes up in this land theology for for the book of Leviticus, for the chronicler, For Ezekiel, they all say that one of the reasons for the exile is that the land is exhausted because of the sin of Israel and she needs to be given a rest. 
And the exile is a grace to the land because the land is left there to lay fallow and to rest because the wicked Israelites have been taken out of it. And now following the land's rest, the Lord is returning them to it. And what are they doing, says Ezra? We're just tiring it out once again. Our sin is rendering it impure. We're not doing the thing we're called to do, which was to cleanse the land. We should remember this too. Our sin does not stop with us. It's not just a matter of our hearts, but our sin has effects and consequences in the world around us. It poisons the world around us. Our sin, going all the way back to the garden, to the rebellion in the garden, our sin does indeed break the world. It's not a little thing. It's not a slight fever. It's not a blemish. It breaks it all. Our sin poisons our relationships. It poisons our community. And for some of us, it even poisons our worship because we come to the Lord with unrepentant sin and we find ourselves alienated from him. Alienated from worship. You see, our unrepentant sin poisons the world around us, how much more of a reason ought we to have to recognize the need for repentance? Last point. Notice how his prayer ends with an acknowledgement of God's justice. He's not coming before the Lord saying, look at this punishment, but you don't want to punish me anymore. Don't you love me? Right? Notice he doesn't do that. He doesn't say, uh, you know, the justice of God is the bad news. I need to get to the good news. He doesn't say that either. He says, God's justice is beautiful and right. You are just God, and we've been oppressed. We've been abused. We know that it's important that God is just. And however, recognizing that, we also recognize that we are the objects of God's justice. You should do this too. When you pray sins of repentance, you don't say, Lord, now please just forgive and forget. Stop being just for a few minutes and just accept me. That's not what our prayer is saying. Our prayer is saying this, Lord, you are just and that is good and beautiful. And if that weren't the case, then this would be a hopeless life. However, we know that you also are merciful. Like Ezra, we remember that passage back in um, Exodus where Moses says, I, I, I want to see God. And, and God says, you can't see me. You'll die, but I'll, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass before you and I'll show you the afterside of my goodness. It's really, it's an interesting passage. And, and the Lord passes bef- before him and he sings this song about his name. He says, yod vav Adonai, Adonai. He sings a song about his name, the Lord does. And he says, merciful and compassionate and loves to show favor, loves to show grace. But he says, but by no means will acquit the wicked. See, we have to remember that God's justice is a part of his beautiful, wondrous character. It's beautiful and it's good. Our sins deserve judgment, just as Ezra says here. We deserve this and so much more. However, we can also take heart knowing that our God loves mercy and favor and grace so much that when he introduces himself to Moses, that's what he leads with. He leads with his mercy. He leads with his grace. Your prayer is not, come on, Lord, 
Isn't this a little over the top? That's not your prayer. Your prayer is this, I deserve this and so much more, but I know that you love grace because you told me that you love grace and I have seen how my sins were paid for on Jesus Christ as he ascended to that cross that he took upon himself the guilt that I deserve so that I can boldly come before you with this audacious claim, just like Ezra can, with this audacious claim that you might forgive me. You see, the chasm that is opened up between the wonderment and the glory of Christ's character and the horror and the tragedy of his death on the cross, his atoning sacrifice, the chasm that's opened up between those two things is so great that it swallows up every sin you have ever committed or will ever commit if you are his in Christ Jesus. You cannot outsin his grace. But it's not because he's a God who forgives and forgets. It's because he's a God of justice and it's good. That's what we're doing when we go to people with the gospel. We say, your sins, just like mine, need to be judged. May they be judged on Christ and not on your own head. Let me close with this. This is from the Canon of Dort, which is an old ecumenical global council dealing with the issue of whether or not Christians can lose their salvation. That's ultimately what they're wrestling with. What does it mean to be saved and can you lose your salvation? And this is what they say when they're talking about the life of the Christian. They say, no, you cannot lose your salvation. You will both persevere and be preserved by the Lord. But what does that look like? What does that look like to be a saint who is persisting to the end? So this is the stance of the Christian life according to the canon of Dort, chapter 5, section 7. They say this, For in the first place, God preserves in those saints when they fall, that is when they fall to sin, God preserves within them an imperishable seed. It's interesting, he's using a term very similar to what we find in Ezra 9. An imperishable seed from which they have been born again, lest it perish or be dislodged. So God preserves them. Secondly, by his word and spirit, God certainly and effectively renews them to repentance so that they have a heartfelt and godly sorrow for the sins that they have committed that they seek and obtain through faith and with a contrite heart forgiveness in the blood of the mediator, that they then experience again the grace of a reconciled God and that they through faith adore God's mercies. Finally, that from then on, they more eagerly work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. And then we might say, if we wanted to put a, a, a you know, stage notes in the canon of Dort, we'd say rinse and repeat. This is the Christian life. It is repenting sometimes in tears like Ezra does. Someone asked me, did I grow out my beard so that I could illustrate what it's like to pull the hair out of your beard? No, I didn't do that. But you can sometimes repent in tears. But let me also encourage you in this. Sometimes repent in laughter. Knowing the grace of God that washes over your sins. Knowing the goal the hope to which you have been called, that you can repent in joy because of the oceans and oceans of grace that God has poured out on you. Because God is just, we can be sure that our sins will be punished. Because God is gracious, we can be sure that Christ has taken upon himself the condemnation that we deserve. That's what it means to come to Christ in faith. We acknowledge, like Ezra and Daniel and Nehemiah, that we deserve it all and so much more. 
And we also recognize that the fruit of our rebellion has been borne out on Christ as he takes his place on the cross. And his sacrifice is received as he rises from the dead. So that now we can go to God in repentance with confidence, knowing that our Lord receives us in Christ. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do lift up this time. I pray that you would bless us as we prepare our hearts now for the Lord's Supper. Give us spirits, we pray, of repentance, that you would search us, O God, that you would know our hearts, and that you would lead us in your everlasting way. It's in the name of Christ Jesus we pray. Amen.